0: Going to be a uh, continuation of the original Christian manifesto that we began looking at last week. Will again be in Matthew chapter five. So uh, be headed there if you would. Matthew chapter five. We're going to we're going to focus on verses six uh, down to uh, down to verse. Oh, let's see. Looks like verses six and seven. But we're going to read all of the beatitudes. That's the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I do want you to remember just a couple things that we looked at last week just by way of review. Um, the, the, the first thing I want you to remember is that the Sermon on the Mount seems to, to not have been just one great big long sermon. It went on for uh, three chapters, and so this seems to be more of a uh, distilled version of the things that Jesus taught to his followers over and over and over and over again. In other words, this is what Jesus wanted his disciples to get. This is what he wanted them to remember. This is how he wanted them to live. And therefore, um, we as his followers today should understand what he's trying to get across to us. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty long, but the part that we're going to look at is just the Beatitudes. And that's a small part of his teaching, but it's a very important part of his teaching. Also, remember, as we uh, look through these verses, you'll see that the word blessed shows up over and over and over again. And remember, that word blessed in this context means Happiness, but it's more than that because it's experiencing the favor of God. It's experiencing uh, his, his His approval, and so this is primarily an internal thing, whereas happiness is more external. Okay, so that's that's just kind of review, some groundwork stuff. Last time we looked at the the first three beatitudes that He gives us: Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they're, they're morally bankrupt before God. Blessed are those who mourn, and uh, and then. It talks about the meek or the gentle and the blessings they would experience. So today I want to look at the kind of the middle section of the Beatitudes. We're, like I said, we're only going to look at two today. Um, and and I, I, I want us to, well, there, there's a lot here. will not we stand as we uh, turn over to Matthew 5, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 3. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. Maybe see now. A moment ago, I said that we're going to focus on the middle, of, uh, kind of the middle two. We're going to look at verses six and seven, and and the one that he starts out with in verse six is he says, "Blessed are." The, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now his words can, can kind of lead two different ways, and I think that he has uh, both of these things in mind because both of them are related. You remember last week, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, we talked about those who are poor in spirit. That doesn't mean those who, uh, who, who, are, who are financially poor. It's talking about people who recognize that they, they have no good moral standing before God. They are sinners. And they recognize that and they realize there's no way that they can fix it on their own. So they cast themselves wholly on God's mercy and grace. And then he talks about those who mourn in verse 4. Those are the people who not only recognize that they've sinned, but actually mourn because of it. They are sad because of it. They feel sorrow because they have sinned against God. Well, this verse in in verse 6, it starts out in a similar vein. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their shortcomings before God and then hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to be made right with God and right before God. See, the, the picture here of hungering and thirsting is very powerful. I can identify with hunger, can't you? Now, I can identify with, like, starvation hunger, but I get hungry a lot, and I eat a lot. But the picture here is one of being famished. It's Picture a man out on a deserted island. Big old scraggly beard, long hair, he's gaunt, his ribs are showing. I mean, he's in a bad state of affairs. He's about to starve to death. What do you think that man is thinking of? He's not hungry and thirsting after his sports team winning. He's not hungry and thirsting after getting some more money so he can buy a bigger house, have a nicer vehicle than his neighbor. He's not hungry and thirsting after any of that stuff. He's hungry and thirsting for food. That man's hungry. hungry. Those of us who are Christians, think about the time when God was dealing with your heart, when He was convicting you of your sin. What were you thinking about? You were thinking about getting right with God, weren't you? You were thinking, man, I whatever else happens, I've got to be made right with God. I've got to be I've got to be saved. Because I'm a sinner. You're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and, and Jesus promises that type of person will be filled. Now, this idea of, of filling the word that's used there speaks of gorging oneself. And I, when I think of gorging oneself, I think of Thanksgiving. And, and, and all the tables all spread out. Now, we had a big family. And we didn't have Thanksgiving dinner in the house. We had out in the garage because uh, there were 11 of my, there were eleven kids in Dad's family. And they had spouses. And they were like five generations alive for a while. I mean, there, there were a lot of people, 60-some people at, at the place. And so we'd have it out in the garage. And, like, the workbench would be covered with food. I mean, it, it, was, it was a big spread. And that's, that's the kind of picture I get. You go, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have. You go and you eat. And then you're comfortably full. But then you don't stop, right? And then you eat and then you go back for seconds. And you're like, oh, boy. Whew. And then while nobody's looking you unbutton their pants, you know, none of you ever done this. But this is, this is what I've done. And and you eat some more. Oh! Oh! And you, and you say, well, now it's time for dessert. And then you go back and you have, have to get a little bit of everything because you don't want anybody to be offended, right? That's the idea of gorging. I mean, you're full as a tick on a dog's ear and you're about ready to pop. Jesus says, the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they'll be filled. You're starving to death, you'll be so full, you're about ready to explode. I mean, you're going to be you're going to be filled to the max. Now, that's the idea here in an initial sense. When you come to God in faith, He'll take care of making you right with Him. Your hunger and thirst for for Him will be filled in that sense. But this beatitude goes beyond this because it's an ongoing thing as well. See, the Bible teaches and, and Christian experience verifies when you get saved, that's just the beginning. The Christian life, salvation is not the end. It's the beginning. It's like the Christian life is... It's kind of like a seed that's planted in your heart. And then as time goes on, it begins to grow. And it begins to bear fruit. And you can't stay where you are when you get saved. You'll, you'll progress in your Christian life. You will begin to desire more holiness. And, and as, we walk in our, as we progress in our walk with God, He will begin to purify our wants and desires. We will begin to love God more and also hate sin more. And it's in this process of, of, he's in the process of making our actions match our position. And what I mean by that is when we get saved, we're made righteous before God. But we are not practically righteous when we, we are not righteous in all of our actions. We all sin. We all do things that we shouldn't do and leave undone things that we should be doing. And so Jesus says, blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts to be righteous, totally righteous completely righteous. Now I wonder, can that be said of you? Can it be said of me? Can it be said of us? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we seek, do we desire to be completely and totally righteous? See, most of us, I believe, want to have a snicker bar type of righteousness. And what I mean by that is we want to be righteous, but we don't earnestly desire it. We don't want to be completely righteous. Just so long as we can have a little righteous snack, we'll be okay. That's not the type of hunger he's talking about. See, we're content if we just live a little bit better than we did yesterday, or last week, or last year. Well, I didn't say quite as many bad words this week. You know, or or whatever it is. Maybe we're content if if we're just a little bit better than that person sitting down the row from us at church, or that person in, in our workplace, or whoever it is. We can always find somebody that we think we're doing better than. And that's good enough for us. But Jesus doesn't have any of that in mind. He has that down deep belly ground, he can't think of anything else type of hunger. That one that's never fully satisfied. And it never will be satisfied until we get to heaven and we're made like him. And the penetrating question that stares up at us from the page out of verse 6 is this. How badly do you want complete righteousness? how badly do you want to be fully righteous how badly do you want to be living completely surrendered to god do you desire it like that starving man desires food or that person that's that's thirsty desires something to drink what kind of hunger and desire do you have a lot of us say well i'm i have that type of hunger Are you prepared to make any kind of sacrifice for it? Are you prepared to actually put feet to your desire? Now that is depressing to me. Is that depressing to anybody else? And I say it's depressing because I look at my own life, and I look at what Jesus says, and he says, Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And I say, whew. Too many times I've had a, a snicker bar type of desire. It's not been a a full-fledged, I want to be totally righteous, sold out to God. I've just been content to kind of glide along. But even inherent in in this beatitude that's so convicting and depressing, frankly, there's a glimmer of hope because notice what it says. It, It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He does not say, blessed are those who always achieve righteousness. And I'm glad for that, aren't you? Because otherwise, if he said, you're only going to be blessed if you achieve righteousness, none of us here would fit this. Because none of us are ever totally, completely righteous. But God knows our heart. He knows how earnestly we desire it. Then he goes on to the next one in verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And this is a tough one, especially for me. Because if you know me very well, you know that I'm not naturally a very compassionate, merciful person, and that's terrible, especially to be a preacher. But it's the truth. I, I'm just, I'm just not very much. And I've noticed in life that I'm not the only one. Because in general, and I just mean people in general, we love to receive mercy, but we want to give justice. Have you ever noticed that? Well, man, cut me a little slack. You don't know what. If if you just understood what was happening in my life, you would would understand. But then somebody does something to us, something happens, and we want to throw the book at them, right? We want mercy, but we want to give justice. And mercy is one of those things that it's, it's uncomfortable to give, but it's also uncomfortable to receive sometimes. And we can identify mercy whenever we give it or whenever we get it, but what is it? How do we put it into words? Well, the mercy that Jesus speaks of here, the word that he uses, is more than just pity. It actually means identifying with the person. To use the common, common image of the day, it would be putting yourself in their shoes. Get in their skin and walk around a little while. It has the idea of putting yourself in their place. And in the Jewish mindset, mercy showed itself in both forgiveness and in almsgiving, and both are in view here. See, we need to be merciful when it comes to forgiving, that means somebody offends us, they insult us, they, uh, they they wrong us in some way, they make us mad. We need to forgive them. Forgiveness is a big topic. And I, I can't cover all about forgiveness in, this, in just a, a, a little snippet here. It deserves a whole series of its own. But just think... Think of this idea. Have this idea of putting yourself in their place, how that's going to affect your forgiveness. Let's say you go to work. Man, you had a bad day just before you get to work. You know what I'm talking about. The kids are not cooperating. You're trying to get them ready. You get a flat tire. Um, you know, you oversleep. You get in the fight with your spouse. I mean, just whatever it is. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed nothing else. And you get, this, you get to work, and you're just... Ooh, nobody wants to be around you. You get there, and you see somebody, and you speak to them, and they snap at you. Now, what do you do? Well, you've already had a bad morning. So you've got a couple choices. Number one, you can really go after them. Give them Give them an earful. They deserve it anyway, right? You can hold a grudge against them bad mouth them, give them the cold shoulder, say so that'll get them. They'll, they'll really know how bad they've, they've upset them. Maybe we can get all in a huff and just be real unpleasant towards them. Or, we can try to put ourselves in their shoes. When we do that, we remember, hey, you know what? I forgot, but one of their parents has a terminal illness. We find out later, oh, their kid, their little kid, Mine were not cooperating today, but their kid was up sick all night and they still had to be here because they didn't have any sick days left because their, their kid's not been too well this year. We remember, oh yeah, their oldest one is living off in the far country and it's really been stressing them out. Oh yeah, they just had to put their parent in a nursing home last week. Oh yeah, they found out they're getting laid off. Now, Are those going to be the reasons that somebody snaps at you every time? No. Some people are not morning people. Some people are just jerks no matter what time of day it is. But you know what? When we put ourselves in their shoes, it'll help us say, oh, maybe I don't have as much right to get angry as I thought. And if nothing else, here's a good reason to forgive somebody. Because if you don't, God won't forgive you. Hold your place here. And turn over to the next chapter in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start looking in verse 9. You'll recognize this. It's the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to notice, because sometimes we recite the Lord's Prayer, we sing it as a hymn. But I want you to notice what's kind of nestled right in these verses. Starting in verse 9, he says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and we're all good up until this point. Verse 11, or verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Totally self-serving reason, but it's a good reason. And what a terrifying way to pray. God, please forgive me just like I forgave that person that did something wrong to me. Is he going to forgive you? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on how you responded. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the other idea here, in in, uh, in back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, talks about the merciful. It also has this idea of not, not just forgiving, but also helping those who need it. It still has the, the idea of identifying with someone, but it's helping people when they're in distress. Now, I know you've never had this happen, but probably somebody next to you has. It's easy to make assumptions about people when you see them, isn't it? And to use that assumption as a reason not to help out. Now, you've never done this, I know, but I have. Here's an an example. I went to Chicago my senior year of college on a mission trip. And we went to inner-city Chicago, and it was a rough place. I mean, I saw a guy, as we were standing in line, to get breakfast one day because they turned us out on the street, so we had to live like somebody who was homeless for 24 hours. And so I was standing in the soup line, And while I was standing there, I saw a guy get hit in the head, in the forehead, with a hammer. Rough place. Now, I have, before that, I'd had kind of a negative view of homeless people. I felt bad for them, but it's like, in the back of my mind, and I know you've never thought this when you see somebody asking for money, but in the back of my mind, I thought, they just take advantage of the system. They probably really have a nice home, or at least a home. If they if they really are homeless, if they would just get out and get a job of stand here asking for money, they could have it. If you just work hard enough, you can have a home. I know none of you have ever thought that, right? But when I went to Chicago, I'd never had any experience with a homeless person, so I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any stories. I couldn't put a face with the situation. And when I got there I found out that things were a lot different than what I had thought. For instance, a lot of people had experienced gentrification. And what that means is there were a lot of people living in low-income housing. But there was a move whenever I was up there in 2004, there was a move for the middle class and even the upper class to buy those buildings in low-income areas, to buy those buildings and turn them into condos. Now, just think, if you are a person living, you don't have very much money, you're in a low-income housing development, essentially, somebody buys your home, you don't have any say in the matter because you're renting the place, what do you do? They're not going to let you stay there because they're turning into a condo. You're out on the street. You don't have very much money. There aren't very many homes because that's happening with all the buildings in the area. Where do you go? You can go to the suburbs. You can't buy any place there. So what do you do? You don't have any money. There were actually people that I came in contact with that had a job but were homeless because there was no place that would fit in their budget, but they still had a job. You say, well, what about those other people, the one that didn't have a job? Have you ever tried filling out a, a job application? What's the first thing to ask for? Your name and address you don't have a home, Where are you going to put? Can't get a job. Can't fill out an application. It just perpetuates. Whenever I had that experience, it changed my whole view on the homeless situation and the poor. Now, are there still people that take advantage of the system? Oh, yeah. Does it make me mad? You bet. But you know what? It helped me better identify with those people. It makes it easier to show mercy when you can put yourself in their place. And it, you may not be able to do it if you don't have one of those types of um, situations or, or experiences. And you say, well, that's homelessness. That's way up in Chicago. It doesn't just apply to homelessness. Think about anybody that's in distress. Somebody that's going through physical pain, emotional pain. Somebody that's going through grief, some other distress. We need to purposefully identify with them and show them mercy in the way that's appropriate to that situation. Now, we could keep going on with this Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. But I want to stop here because, I mean, this is real life stuff right here, isn't it? I mean, you can't get much more down to earth living than what he talked about. Because the world is full of hurting people. Everybody's going through something. Everybody. Everybody has their own struggle. You have yours, I have mine. We all have stuff we're going through. And the people that we come into contact with have stuff we're going through. And as a New Hope church family, listen, my heart is that we would be merciful to other people in our church family. When one of us hurts, others of us ought to hurt. And that's that's what Paul says. He says we're we're the body of Christ. You think about your body, your physical body. You stub your toe, what happens? Your whole body takes notice, doesn't it? It should be like that in in a, a church. If one of us is hurting, the whole body ought to take notice and help. When people come through those doors... I hope they can see, and and I want us to work on them to be able to tell. You know what? This is a safe place. This is a place where I can come heal. People aren't going to judge me. People aren't going to talk bad about me. It's just a place where the hurting can come. And not only as a church, we need to be merciful individuals too. And again, I have I struggle with this. This is my the way my personality. We need to be caring people, forgiving people. Forgive others. Or God won't forgive you. You say, I don't like it. I don't either. That's not Braddock theology. That's Jesus theology. That's what Jesus said. And no matter how you turn it on its head, it still says the same thing. And I wonder, is there somebody you need to forgive this morning? That's down to earth, isn't it? Is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there somebody who's made you mad? Who's offended you? Who's upset you? Who's said something bad about you? They've insulted you? Are you holding a grudge against him? Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something small. But boy, just—it just, it's like a, a little stone in your shoe. Maybe that person's not even alive anymore. You know what? Unforgiveness leads to bitterness. And that will eat you from the inside out. And it doesn't just affect you. The Bible says it talks about a root of bitterness springing up. And it affects those around you. It'll defile those around you. Forgive them this morning. You say, but I've already forgiven them and I'm still mad at him. <coughs> Forgive them again. You say, well, what if I come back next week and I'm mad at him again? Forgive him again. What if I remember him at lunchtime and I get mad and hurt and I want to get back at him again? Forgive him again. Just keep forgiving them. Forgive them. Forgive them. Is it easy? No. Is it saying that what they did was okay? No. But what it's saying is, I release my right to get even with you. And I'll let God take care of that. But as for me, I'm just going to forgive you. But what about this righteousness? What's your desire like? How much do you hunger and thirst after it? I'm not going to ask if you're completely righteous, because I know the answer to that. I know it's that for you, same as I know it. for me, none of us are. But what's your desire like? What's your appetite for righteousness? If it's not where it should be, ask God to, to make that, that hunger and that thirst stronger. And maybe maybe today what I said earlier is resonating with you because God's convicting your heart and you, you know what that hunger and thirst to be made right with God is like because you're experiencing it. Let me tell you how to satisfy it. The Bible says that if we will... Confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not doing a big procedure, it's not going through a bunch of rigmarole, it's not going through baptism or communion or anything else. It's putting our faith in Christ. If you've never done that, today's the day to do it. Today is the day of salvation.